you can give about those dynamics? There, there, that is a really deep question. Um, there are a lot of dynamics to watch out for. Uh, the first is just a mindset shift, realizing that a predator can be anyone. It can be a young teen. It can be a grandpa. Uh, oftentimes, it is the person you would least suspect. Mm. You know, and, and that's a dynamic that, again, predators rely on and that sexual assault victims know, and that's one of the things that keeps them quiet. Whenever a victim discloses, the question they are most often asked is, how is that possible because... And then there's a reason that this person has for why the the accused can't be a sexual predator or why the abuse couldn't have happened. And what we have failed to realize is that those exact dynamics that we think make it impossible, those are the dynamics that are making it possible. And so the very first thing really is a mindset shift Mm -hmm. as to what predatory behavior looks like, who can be a predator and how that plays out. Uh, Beyond that, wise policies, background checks are great. Uh, you know, it's a good place to start. The reality is that only six out of a thousand rapists are ever going to serve jail time. Only right. seven will have a conviction. Right. So the likelihood of picking up a predator on wow. a background check is pretty slim. Um, okay. But it's a good place to start. Uh, but beyond that, there really is a significant amount of education that is needed uh, to understand what grooming looks like. <clears throat> Excuse me, to understand what a predator looks like. Um, you know, one one church that I'm aware of had a very serious situation in the congregation where it was a 12-year-old boy who was sodomizing an 8-year-old boy. Uh, and when it was initially brought to the pastors, uh, their response was, well, it must have been consensual because there's not enough of an age disparity. This, this boy hasn't finished puberty yet. Uh, and so it was treated as a consensual sexual encounter, consensual wow. exploration for a significant time period, which did incredible damage uh, to the victim and to the victim's family. Um, and so, so education in terms of what those behaviors look like, what grooming looks like, and who can be a predator is something that is absolutely vital for those in leadership. Obviously, again, Rachel, maybe if, if you would be willing, maybe we'll do a part two at some point here. Can I, is there any organization that has published a prevention policy statement that you would recommend? Uh, and if not, uh, well, we are, we're in the midst of drafting one at our church, and Rachel is a part of our church, for those who don't know. Um, and so this is something Rachel asked me about in, our, in a membership interview. That's something that we had discussed, and, and we had, I think, hopefully a, uh, the cultural issue down and had at least practically had certain things imp- implemented but had not written down exactly what we're doing and why we're doing what we were doing. But is there is there a policy that you could point somebody to that you could say this organization or this church, and you've read it and you've thought, this is what I would love to give to every church to prayerfully consider having as their policy? Yeah, there absolutely is. Um, the organization that I would recommend would be Grace, Godly Response to Abuse in a Christian Environment. That organization was started by uh, one of Billy Graham's grandsons, Boz Chavidian. Uh, Boz was a prosecutor in Florida. He started up the Sex Crimes Division in the state of Florida uh, because he saw such a need for people who were specialized in prosecuting sex crimes. Uh, so he approached the governor as an assistant attorney general. He started that division up from the ground. And what he discovered during his time uh, prosecuting sexual assault cases uh, within his expertise uh, was that churches are almost always on the wrong side mm. of sexual assault. Right. Uh, and so he stopped his work as a prosecutor and started up this organization uh, to help churches learn how to prevent and minister to victims of sexual assault. Mm. Uh, and so he brings an incredible uh, range of experience himself, but he has brought in some of the best experts uh, from a Christian psychology perspective, from a Christian and biblical counseling perspective, uh, from a prosecutorial and an investigative perspective. Uh, and Grace is available to give um, to give consultations, but they also have a very uh, well done training program well they will actually come into a church and over a period of several months will train a church uh, from start to finish 
in their prevention policies and in their response policies, how to handle uh, someone who has pedophilia or sexual predation in their background, uh, how to incorporate those people into the body of Christ in a way that is safe uh, and is non-damaging to sexual assault victims. Um, And so really for churches that are serious about handling sexual assault well, I would recommend having Grace come in. Uh, and do their their okay. full teaching seminar. And, and that's great. Do they also have like, um, you know, some, again, sadly, sometimes the guys want a pamphlet. You know, mm-hmm. they just give me give me three pages, uh, a three page PDF that we can put into our constitution or something. Is there anything that's even? I mean, I, I don't want to be. I'm not trying to be cute with that. I'm just recognizing that for some people, they're just. I don't know if, you know, six months of, of this or that, which may be what they need, but is there something, um, a one book, uh, a, a one thing that you would uh, handle to anybody? It just, just out of curiosity. Uh, Grace does have resources on their website and that they will pass to pastors. Okay. They will That's also great. do consultations with them. Uh, yeah, I, I think if you're listening to this, what we would encourage you to do is to do something immediately in a short term on whatever you are already recognizing you need to change. I'm even listening to Rachel and aware of uh, something, many of these things we have done, but so a few of the things she's mentioned that we haven't that I'm going to go back and, and, and address. So if you're listening to this, you're in good company and you need to immediately address it in the short term and then maybe look to a more extensive evaluation or bringing grace into your church in that way. But don't, don't just sit on this and wait uh, if even if you're wanting to do the full evaluation, do something immediately and begin the slower process of the longer term fix. Okay, so Rachel, let's try to move on. And again, just in light of time, um, discovery and exposure. Uh, let's let's walk through this. Now, suddenly, a parent comes. A, a child has has said somebody touched me. Somebody's making me. I'm uncomfortable with the way uh, this has gone on. You know, again from they've they've touched they've exposed themselves to there's penetration or whatever the horror that has gone on so it's brought to you let's let's walk through discovery and exposure and want to talk about in the church how do we handle this in the church and then how do we handle this with the authorities um how quickly do you bring in the authorities how much do you ask the victim if the victim is a, of a certain age, what what they desire, what the families, the the family dynamic, protecting the other families in the church, all of this that goes in. I know that's a loaded question, and so I'm asking you again: solve the w- problems of the world in five minutes. No, but you, <laughs> but you, you know, you. Th- that's a loaded thing. But if you maybe try to help us sketch that out, so we've never had it happen before. Suddenly, a little boy is brought in, or a girl's brought in with their mom and dad. They're broken. They're shattered. They don't know what to do with it, how to deal with it. We've got to deal with them. We've got to deal with the church, and we may well have to deal with legal authorities. So um, maybe try to walk us through what you've discovered, what you've learned, because I think this is where churches have primarily failed. If I'm this and with the post. Uh, have probably been the post-traumatic or the ways we have failed the most, but let's help us th- with this. Yeah, uh, there. You know, first, that really depends on what type of disclosure you get. The vast majority of the time, 
uh, when there are warning signs in the congregational warning signs with the child, you don't get a specific disclosure of sexual assault. You don't get a child coming and saying, I've been sexually assaulted or so-and-so has done this. Um, So the very first level, ideally, is for pastors to understand what those warning signs look like so that they can catch it when they're not getting a disclosure. But for those times that you do get a specific disclosure of sexual assault or something that is clearly sexual assault, uh, it does need to be reported to the authorities immediately. Now, that does not mean that every state has those mandatory reporting laws, but for the safety of the child and really even for uh, the betterment of the predator, uh, for the ability uh, to shine God's truth and and to call this person to repentance in a way that could potentially be effective, uh, the legal authorities that God has instituted need to be brought in. That also has to be done very, very carefully because most sexual assault victims are not going to want to have to take that step. It's a very painful step to take. Rich, can I interrupt you just a moment? Just just not wanting to assume anything. When you say call the authorities, like who should a pastor call first to immediately report this? The police department. Okay, just to call the police. Okay. Call the police because yeah, because if it has happened recently, there may be physical signs of sexual assault. Usually the police can refer you to a pediatrician or to a physician that specializes in sexual assault exams. Uh, physicians that can make it as the least traumatic experience for the child as possible. Uh, They usually have psychologists that they will refer to to do what is called a forensic uh, psychology examination where they interview the child uh, in a way that is uh, best best designed to minimize trauma as well as uh, get the relevant information without planting ideas, uh, without suggesting things. Mm. Uh, So you really need to involve the experts right away. And would you suggest this even if somebody said, I'm just telling you this, we don't want to... I had a situation years ago, and I didn't involve our church, but I had a, I had a mother come and, and tell me what had happened at a, a big church here in town, a big charismatic church here in town, where uh, two of her daughters were sexually assaulted by visiting pastors, covered up, and even in, well, I don't even want to get in the, the horror show that that was. Now she's telling me this; it's 15 years afterward, and I'm asking, "Did you report anything? And do you want to report anything?" And of course, now her daughters at this time are 18, 19, 20, you know, years old, and they're not part of the church. But I, I'm trying to wrestle through what do I have any responsibility if these guys are still out there? You know, can you? They're still out there, and do you just stay silent? What do you What do you do if if the victims don't want to come forward, the parents don't want to come forward? Is there Is there any recourse you could have as a pastor to say, I've got to say so? I, I they won't even you know they won't even tell you the names. You know you're you're begging them, tell me who this is so we can expose this. They're unwilling to do it. Is there anything you can do, or do you just leave that to God? I think, again, that depends a little bit. Uh, You know, if you have the name of the person who has uh, been the abuser, ultimately a report does need to be made. And the reason a report needs to be made is because that leaves a breadcrumb. You don't know what other police reports have been made. You don't know what other police reports will be made. In my case, by the time I was abused, there should have been four reports already been made. Mm -hmm. At the point that I disclosed to the coach and to the police officer, that same year, two more reports should have been made. In fact, one of them was made to the Meridian Township Police Department. Had that report been cataloged properly, uh, when my friend went and searched, he would have found two additional police reports from 2004 had the right thing been Mm -hmm. done. Um, and so, you know, the first step is that it just, it leaves a breadcrumb. 
You never and, know what else has been and, out there. And Rachel, if I may ask a little bit, what about your situation when you were 12 in the situation in the church? I'm trying to remember. Uh, uh, no, I did not. I was eight, between eight, seven and eight I, okay. with the situation in the church. And I did not disclose because I didn't understand what had happened uh, okay. until I was 12. Took a biology class and that cleared a lot of things up. Okay. And, and do you have any idea what's going on with that person who abused you? Do you remember who they are and do you know where they are? And has anything further happened? He was actually an international student and he has returned to his home country. So okay. There is no recourse at that point, and he had by the time I had disclosed he was out of the country, okay. uh, and so there was no way to track him down at that point. Uh, but with my situation in uh, when I was 15, uh, I did disclose in 2004, a few years later, to a police officer, and my hope at that time was to be able to report. Uh, but because of the way it was handled, it sent a very clear message um, that I needed to be quiet and that I wasn't going to be believed. Mm. Um, and you know, and your question is very valid because most of the time you are dealing with victims uh, who are terrified to report. They don't want to have to walk through that process. So there are a couple dynamics to that. Uh, the first is that if the person is in contact currently with children and you know who they are, uh, the reality is that they are still abusing. Pedophiles don't stop. They have you know, an average of between uh, 50 to 120 victims before they are finally caught. So a report does need to be made. How that is done uh, is, I think, where the shepherding really comes in. Uh, to mm-hmm. be able to work with the family, uh, to show grace and compassion and love, and to be able to walk through that process with them in a way that is gentle and compassionate uh, is incredibly important when that disclosure happens. And to be able to express to this family that you want to be there for them, that you want justice to be done, that you want God's justice done in this situation, um, so that as they have to walk through that process, they are supported. uh, And the light of the gospel is really giving hope uh, Mm. throughout the entirety of the situation. And ultimately, the reality is that a prosecutor is not going to proceed typically if a victim is unwilling. Uh, Mm. And so it is not going to force a victim into a situation at least where they have to participate in a trial if the victim is unwilling to do so. So there are some protections from a prosecutorial standpoint as well. Mm. So your counsel to pastors is if if they get wind, I'm even thinking of like a, let's say an adult woman is physically abused by her husband. Um, And the woman comes to the, to the elders to talk to, to, to get help or to just share with him what's going on. But then you, then a, an elder would go to report it and she doesn't want to report it. You saying a pastor still needs to go report, right? Even if she says, no, I don't want you to report it for the reason you just gave. Would that be the situation when you're dealing with an adult? Yes, I absolutely think it okay. is. Uh, and again, part of that dynamic that pastors need to understand is an abuse victim can't report herself or himself. She is not in an emotional position to be able to do that. Oftentimes, uh, particularly in domestic violence situations where she is surrounded by a culture of abuse, her ability to uh, define what is normal and abnormal has been radically altered. Uh, Her ability to be able to confidently say this is abuse and it is wrong and it needs to be dealt with and God's justice needs to be brought here and I am not safe. Uh, Those are things an abuse victim who is immersed in abuse cannot say. She does not have that ability. She doesn't have that perception of reality anymore. She needs someone from the outside uh, to be able to come in and say, this is wrong. You deserve protection. Uh, You are made in the image of God. You deserve God's justice. And for your safety, because we love you, we are going to help you. And then to be able to minister practically through that process. So let's talk in light of, let's talk about post-trauma ministry. And again, I don't realize all this, we're just being suggestive here, brothers, and um, and hopefully, again, there'll be some resources here made available. But let's talk about to the victim, to the families of the victim, and then also sometimes what's not dealt with is the, the, the family of the perpetrator. 
you know, so I'm a mom, I'm a dad, and it was my son who did it. I'm shattered. I, I'm shattered. I, I, I have a friend whose son did something, and it's life altering. It's you know, I mean, let alone to the ones who are the victim. You know, I mean, well, that's what we fo- we are focusing on. But you think sometimes, wow, you know, what's it like to be the mom or dad? And then you're, you know, you try to go back to church and eyes are on you and, you know, and then to the church itself, you know, we've, we're scared, you know, we're, 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 you know, somebody's hurting. Do we pull out? Do we, do we stop going to church? Do we take our kids out of everything? How, how do we try to handle, try to just, if you can, maybe walk through or give some counsel on those issues post-traumatic, post-exposure. Wow. Um, I think I think ultimately what is at the root of that is having a good theology of justice, a good theology of grace, a good theology of repentance, um, so that both the victim's family and the perpetrator's family are able to see God's will being done through the meeting out of justice. They are able to see grace and mercy met with justice and restoration. Um, and that is a powerful picture of the gospel for both uh, sets of families. And it, it would be incredibly difficult to be the perpetrator's family. I have often thought of that as I have watched my son, uh, even just when he does something like hit his sister, mm. um, how much that would be devastating yeah. if that were my son. And so I do think that is a dynamic that needs to be handled very sensitively, very compassionately, but an informed theology of grace and repentance that can be that can portray the gospel to both families is very important to be able to walk through uh, the justice process with the perpetrator's family and discuss the idea of justice and grace and repentance and that God has come uh, to take the justice for us. Mm. Uh, But that that does not mean we don't have discipline and chastening. You know, a fully rounded theology is really necessary for ministering to both families and it is necessary for ministering to the congregation. Again, so your parishioners can see justice uh, met with grace and mercy. What can I real quickly, Rachel, what if the abuse is in the family, let's say a, a brother toward his sisters, how broadly does that, and that's the only time it's ever taken place, only, you know, how broadly should that, should that be, you know, a family comes or just shattered, heartbroken over a situation like that, should that be, have you had any experience with that and how to minister to families that are dealing, it's not that the kid abused the family over there, but brought that devastation into his own home. Uh, I have actually had experience with that. I have uh, dear friends that have had that exact dynamic in their family, uh, and I am dear friends with the perpetrators and with some of the victims. Mm. That is an incredibly painful situation. Mm. At the same time, you are dealing with real victims of sexual assault who need to know that what was done to them was evil, that God calls it evil, that justice will be done. You are dealing with the perpetrator that needs to understand the direction and the course that his life has been set on um, and, and the responsibility that he has for his actions. A report to the police still does need to be made. Mm-hmm. Walking through uh, that process uh, with the family, with grace and with mercy and with justice, not just for the victim's sake, but for the perpetrator's sake. And the best chance for that family to not be torn apart uh, is for the victims to understand that what was done to them matters but there is still hope for forgiveness and for the perpetrator to understand that what he did was wrong and evil, but that God still extends mercy and forgiveness. If all that's been done, would you still say it needs to be brought to the church as a, as a warning to families? Or if it's been done, if it's been dealt with in the family, the authorities have been called, the children have been helped, the perpetrator has been dealt with and undergone everything that the law demands, 
Do you believe that ought to be brought out publicly or is that a bit more nuanced or? I think depending on the age, that is a little bit more nuanced. That being said, there needs to be some significant restrictions placed on that person within the church and families that are in contact uh, with that perpetrator's family do need to be notified uh, mm-hmm. because there's no way that they can avoid that person being alone with their own children uh, without being notified. And that, that is one of the places where you see the majority of abuse happening in the church is not necessarily in the church nursery or in the Sunday school room or the bathroom, uh, but it's in families that are in constant contact mm-hmm. with perpetrators who are not made aware uh, of this abuse. Uh, mm-hmm. And so there there is a level of awareness, unfortunately, that does need to happen. And that's helpful. I, you know, w- one of the things, Rachel, as I've watched your journey through this, from really just from afar and, and all the the news and media around it, the thing I was most Im- have been most impacted by is that I think every pastor needs to hear is the church has to pursue not just grace but justice, mm-hmm. and um, I think that even though these things are hard that we're talking about, and you know it's going to be devastating to families and this. Would you agree that that's a lot of times what maybe makes pastors passive or not act? And so they, they think they're doing good by sparing people, but the victims are the ones that truly get harmed and all that. And is, is that true and accurate? I think it is. And it's not just that the victims are the ones that get harmed. The very image of God is what gets harmed. Mm. You know, sexuality was designed to be a beautiful picture on earth of Christ's incredible love for the church. It is designed to be the place where you are the most vulnerable and yet the most safe. Mm -hmm. So when you attack sexuality, uh, you attack the very character of God. You attack Mm -hmm. all of those ideas in the gospel of of Mm. safety and security uh, and trust. All of those things that define who God is are attacked in Mm. sexual assault. And so when you do not treat that as the very serious thing that it is, the very character of God and the definition of God and the gospel is damaged. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, when you are not able uh, to call evil evil, it diminishes the glory and the goodness of God. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's one of the things that I think we uh, that we get the worst in evangelical churches is our failure to say this is evil. This is wrong. And and while God can bring good out of it, it does not make what happened good. Right. Darkness and light exist in opposites. Uh, and when you diminish the darkness, you diminish the beauty of the light. Mm-hmm. Okay, Rachel, uh, last question here. Um, you're, we, we are transporting you now to the American Pastors Conference. You've got 50,000. Biggest American Pastors Conference. Go ahead. <laughs> so this is it. It's the biggest pastors conference in, the, in America. So everybody's there. You, we give you a, a few closing moments. What do you want to say to us? Um, to help us, to help you, and to help our children. Uh, wh- how would you plead? You, you know, we we failed. There's been a lot of failure. There's been a lot of pride. A lot of, um, in the name of Jesus, covering up of of things that's gone on. What would you urge us to? I think what I would focus on is how much this matters. Uh, how much not handling sexual assault well damages God's children. Uh, because it is rampant, how much it pushes people from the gospel of Christ, because our culture desperately needs a refuge that they are being pushed from, how much it affects the character of God when we get this wrong, how much it affects the gospel when we get this wrong. And what I would be urging pastors to do is to take it seriously, to treat it like it matters. If 25 to 40 percent of your congregation was riddled with cancer or uh, was unemployed or were single parents, you would be actively pursuing ministering to those people and you would want to do it with knowledge 
25 to 40% of your congregation is a victim of sexual or domestic violence, but we don't pursue it like it matters. And we need to pursue it like it matters because it does. Wow. Rachel, just, it's meant a lot to me that you would come do this. Jim's your pastor. So, you know, uh, you, you, uh, I know you're serving him in this way, but it just means a lot that you would uh, be a part of this with us and talk about this and hopefully let other pastors benefit from all your wisdom all your uh, expertise and all of these things. And we're just grateful for the way God's using you in so many different ways. Can I ask one final question? Can I ask, would you tell us a couple of ways, I'm going to ask Jim to pray for you in, about these things. You mentioned a couple of things that we can only pray for you now, but for those listening, uh, are there a couple of things that you would just ask pastors to keep you in prayer for the next few weeks and even months for whatever you have coming? Could you, would you be willing to share a couple of things like that? Yeah, on a, on a personal level, wisdom with parenting, uh, because we have three and a half beautiful children that we want to parent very well, and we want to nurture well in the grace and the admonition of the Lord, and we need a lot of wisdom uh, for how to balance the ministry God has given us uh, in a way that prioritizes our children and our family, mm-hmm. because that is the first responsibility God has given us. Mm-hmm. Uh, secondly is just wisdom as we work with assault victims and with people that are, that are desiring to learn, mm-hmm. uh, that God would give us grace that he would give us uh, words that are seasoned with salt uh, and that his gospel really would be uh, manifest both to the victims uh, and to his church. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, Before I ask Jim to pray, I'm going to just mention that uh, when we post this, we will put information on there. We'll put Grace's information on there and I'll provide some links and things like that. What is, Rachel, what's the best way for people to be able to reach out to you um, uh, who are are listening to this or, or just to, or places they can reach out to if it's not to you personally or whatever. Could you just mention a couple of those resources too? Yeah, if uh, someone wants to reach out personally, I would you know I would love to connect with them. I have a Facebook page, Rachel Den Hollander official. Okay. Um, that I, that I check frequently, and so I would love to connect uh, with okay. people that way. And I do have a list of resources uh, for assault victims and those walking alongside assault victims that I'm happy to share uh, with anyone that would like those. Okay, great, thank you. Jim, will you pray for us? I will. Thank you, Rachel. Our Father in heaven, this is uh, a reminder that we live in a world that has fallen and cursed and that the enemy, though defeated at the cross, uh, brings his death throes of rage and assaults uh, the most vulnerable of, of your people. And Father, we do pray that you'd help every shepherd listening here to be a genuine shepherd um, watching out for Uh, the safety and the security, loving their flock, and and especially, Lord, those who are the most vulnerable and wounded among us. Um, Our Father, we pray for uh, that grace that would minister to them in the long term, administering hope and help and comfort, and particularly, Father, coming alongside in the immediate aftermath of, 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 of trauma, Uh, loving them, supporting them, believing in them, and week by week in the teaching, preaching of the Word, as we worship together, as we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, that the love of God and the hope of heaven uh, would minister balm to their souls. Our Father, we thank you that whatever justice is ever thwarted in this world will come about in the world to come. We thank you, Father, there is the coming of new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwell. We thank you, Father, there is coming a day in which no child and no boy, no little girl, uh, no, no wife, no, no man, no one will ever be assaulted or hurt again. We thank you, Father, for that hope that we have as your children. And we, Father, pray for Rachel, 
Pray for Jacob. Pray for the children. Pray for the little one in the womb. Father, sustain her. Watch over her. Thank you, Father, for this platform that we believe you have providentially given. She has not sought it. She never would have anticipated it, uh, but it's there. Father, pray that her journey of, of hope, guided by the truth of your word, and the studies you have given her would be a help, to, particularly to other little girls and other women out there who have, um, who have found such joy in your dealings with her, such hope in your dealings with her. Uh, help us again, Father, to do good to your children. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.